Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout... Do you think that he may be prosecuted over his actions? I mean, it's just ridiculous for me to comment over, you know, what some grand jury may be looking at. And I don't see anything to prosecute him over. Lindsay doesn't think so, but maybe, just maybe, Merrick Garland will come to believe that Trump should be prosecuted. And we're starting to see the signs. I'll also explain why Republicans, just like Lindsey Graham, are so willing to tolerate the party's rapid descent into fascism. I'll give you a hint. It's a word that starts with T and ends in axis. Also tonight, a major development in the effort to free Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan from captivity in Russia. And I'll be joined by Olivia Giuliana. She's the amazing young woman who turned a disgusting attack by Matt Gates into an opportunity to raise money for abortion services across the country. We begin tonight with the new signs that the Justice Department is moving the ball in its investigation into the January 6th insurrection. The House January 6th committee has spent the summer laying out its laser-focused investigation into the former president's actions leading up to the attack on the Capitol. And while these hearings have been blockbuster and widely watched, if you found yourself frustrated asking, where is the accountability? You are not alone. But it's important to just keep in your mind alongside your work worries or where your kid's socks are or what date your credit card is due and all the other real life stuff rattling around in there alongside fears of the end of democracy and whether your state now owns your body. The, the way to understand these hearings is to remember that this committee is part of a legislative body. It cannot prosecute anybody. All it can do is investigate what happened on January 6th, 2021, recorded for history, which is important, and recommend changes in law or policy to prevent another insurrection or worse. And on that score, what we're hearing is the work of the committee already informing talks in the Senate to try to reform the Arcane Electoral Count Act of 1887 to ensure that no future president could try to pressure their vice president the way Trump tried to, to get him or her to invent fake powers to undo an election. Senator Susan Collins and Joe Manchin have taken up an effort to overhaul the law in the Senate, leading a bipartisan group of 16 senators. And I can just see the faces that y'all are making. And please know that some members of the January 6th committee are also not impressed by those generally ineffective senators' efforts and perhaps would like to go even further. The committee has also taken great steps to remind us that this was, in fact, an attempted insurrection, highlighting another option. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Clause, disqualifies a person from holding office if, having taken an oath to the Constitution, they engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Then there's option 3, criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Vice Chair Liz Cheney has indicated that there could be multiple referrals regarding the former president. And Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked about that in his exclusive interview with NBC's Lester Holt. I think that's a, a totally up to the committee. You know, we will have the evidence that the committee has presented and whatever evidence it gives us. I don't think that the nature of how they style, the manner in which information is provided, uh, is, is a particular significance from any legal point of view. We have our own investigation pursuing through the principles of prosecution. 
Fast forward 24 hours, and a lot of what we've heard from the committee and what the Justice Department is pursuing now is falling into place. NBC News has confirmed that the Justice Department is looking into the former president's actions in its criminal probe into January 6th and efforts to overturn the 2020 election, trying to find out what he told his inner circle about efforts to install pro-Trump electors in states that President Biden had won and trying to encourage Mike Pence to recognize those fake electors. NBC has also learned that investigators obtained phone records of former chief of staff Mark Meadows back in April, along with other top Trump aides. The Washington Post first reported these developments, noting that the DOJ investigation appears focused on two potential tracks. The first, seditious conspiracy and conspiracy to obstruct a government proceeding. And the second is potential fraud connected to the effort to submit those fake electors and to corrupt the Justice Department. Meaning that quite a lot of what we've heard in these public committee hearings is starting to converge with the DOJ investigation. For example, Greg Jacob, former chief counsel to Pence, testified to the committee last month that coup memo lawyer John Eastman's proposals to have Pence overthrow the election likely violated the Electoral Count Act. And multiple reports indicated that Jacobs testified before a grand jury recently. Meanwhile, today, the Justice Department obtained a new search warrant to access the contents of John Eastman's phone, which was seized by the FBI last month. Not long after, federal agents also searched the home of former Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Clark, also involved with encouraging those alternate electors. And while the Justice Department's scrutiny of the former president is, for now, not a criminal investigation of Trump itself, it sure does raise the prospect of something extraordinary. As no other president has been charged with a crime in all of American history. And joining me now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss, along with Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. And I'm going to start with you, Jill Weinbanks, just on the knowing what you know <laughs> about <laughs> presidents and prosecution um, and the fact that, you know, Nixon came real close to getting prosecuted and probably would have been prosecuted had he not been pardoned by been. Gerald Ford. So, right. It could have been. Um, been when you, I agree with you on that. When, when you look Jill at what the justice department seems to be looking at and also listening to Merrick Garland be as animated as a Merrick Garland can be, because he's not super animated, <laughs> but he was, I guess that was his version of animated. How likely do you think it would be that they really will investigate Donald Trump himself for crimes related to January 6th? I now believe that it is happening, not just that it is likely to happen. I believe it is the right thing. Uh, Michael and I had an exchange today on Twitter, and I think we both agree that Nixon should have been indicted. I fought for that when I was a special prosecutor while he was president. I do not believe that there is anything in the Constitution that exempts him, any president, from being indicted. And then certainly the day he resigned, I went back to Leon Jaworski and argued that he should be indicted right then when he was just an ordinary citizen. Donald Trump is an ordinary citizen and is committing crimes right now. And he must be stopped. I think that had Nixon been stopped, if he had not just been an unindicted co-conspirator, which is a very powerful step. I'm you know, it, it was very important. It let us use the evidence of his tapes at trial, which we couldn't have if he wasn't a co-conspirator. Right. 
But if he had been, one, there would have been a precedent and we wouldn't be dithering around arguing about should it be done or shouldn't it. And secondly, maybe just maybe Donald Trump would have gotten a message from that, that he couldn't commit crimes and get away with it. And maybe he wouldn't have tried to take down our democracy. Maybe he wouldn't have attempted a coup. Maybe he wouldn't have used the big lie to rile up a crowd to try to interfere with Congress and the vice president. I think it was important that we should have done it back then. I think it was wrong that Ford pardoned him. And I'm sympathetic to Ford's motive. I don't think he acted out of any bad motives. I think he meant well in trying to protect America. But this is the result of non-action back then. And let's not make the same mistake twice. You know, and, and Adam Kinzinger took, took that same argument that I know both of you agree with, because we follow you on Twitter, Michael Betchloss, so we know, we know that you agree wholeheartedly with <laughs> what you just, what we just heard. <laughs> See, listen, we are like a mutual following on Twitter, oh, Admiration Society. Absolutely. But here's Adam Kinzinger basically making that same point, but then taking that point forward. Here's Adam Kinzinger. My belief is this. We never want to get to a position in a country where we prosecute last administrations because that's what failed republics, failed democracies do. But if a failed coup and an obvious coup attempt and a president that didn't just choose not to act but willfully watched to see where the mob would go for three hours on January 6th, if he is not held accountable through law, I actually fear that that is a far worse precedent than anything else. If we just wash this under the rug and say, you know, for the sake of the country, let's put this aside, there is going to be somebody else, whether it's Donald Trump in 2024 or somebody else somewhere down the line that recognizes that as the floor of their behavior and pushes even more. And, and we can't survive that. You know, and Michael, to that point, you know, Donald Trump was making a speech in Washington this week where he talked about essentially a purge of all bureaucrats that he doesn't like in Washington, essentially right. saying he would like the power to purge governors that he doesn't like. We've already seen him use the National Guard to clear a path for him to go and hold a Bible for a photo op and use military might and force to do that uh, and displaying the military in a way um, in front of the Lincoln Memorial in June of 2020 during the George Floyd protests as sort of a show of military force. Look at that. That is the way Donald Trump thinks about power. And so I would like you to take that same thing forward, what Jill said and what Adam Kinzinger said, because this is like not a theoretical threat. It's a real threat. Mm -hmm. It's Donald Trump is just one of the people who could do it. Total threat. Uh, Donald Trump is a would-be dictator, and he has been for 70 years. He's given us all sorts of signals that he would grab as much power as possible uh, to the point that it is fascist. You know, you were talking, Joy, about Trump promising a purge if he becomes president again. Who, who did the most famous purge in recent history? That was Stalin. Did not work out too well for either his country or the people who were purged. Millions of people were killed, which I'm not predicting, but who on earth would even say such a thing? In any case, just about the worst thing that any president of the United States can do is to try to use his power to wreck our democracy and take total power that goes outside of the Constitution. That's what Donald Trump did on the 6th of January. He was at the center of this coup d'etat blueprint. No president in American history, and there have been some really bad ones, including, as yeah. Jill knows, Richard Nixon, no one even attempted to come close to doing that. So if he does that and gets away with that, what does that say to him if he, God forbid, comes back in 2025 to the White House 
Or another president who says, gee, Donald Trump got away with it. Richard Nixon got away with something less. So I'm just going to see if I can mobilize the 101st Airborne to intimidate people in American society to do what I want. In that, in that case, we have a lawless society. It's absolutely essential that at least an indictment of Donald Trump be investigated. And I think the last 24 hours is nothing but good news. Yeah, I mean, I think about Ron DeSantis, who's basically Trump with a brain, but who also has a mind to literally control what teachers say, what businesses Absolutely. can say, who wants to it's have persistent. complete, utter control over speech. Think about him with that same power. I do want to ask you, Michael, about just the historical prospect of the United States taking that step and indicting a president. Um, the great Lester Holt did ask Merrick Garland about what that would do in tearing apart the country. And in this case, tearing right. apart the country means there's a part of the country that is armed and deeply fascistic. There are proud boys and oath keepers still out there who essentially are willing to do violence for Trump. What do you think would happen in the country if Trump were indicted? Oh, I think it's going to make a lot of people angry. And I think we are already getting close to the edge of civil war, and this would make it worse. But, and I'm so glad Lester asked that question because, as you know, a lot of people are saying that, it's not the attorney general's job to be a political pundit and say, gee, if I indict this guy, this group out in Wyoming might be angry and they might be violent. That's not his job. His job is to enforce the law and pursue justice wherever it leads. And it makes me cry that our country has come to the point where an indictment of an ex-president, even if we find that it's very much deserved, could take us over the edge of civil war. But the alternative to that is to have an attorney general saying, we're going to let criminals run wild, especially in the White House, because if we prosecute them, we might have political problems. That would be terrible. Yeah. Indeed. And, and last uh, point to you, um, Jill. Um, we learned um, through audio um, evidence that the former defense secretary, Chris Miller, um, has said Trump never did order National Guard, didn't order troops. Again, he ordered National Guard to help him, Another you know, line. bully. Exactly. exactly. To bully exactly. people, citizens against their First Amendment rights. But he didn't order National Guard at that time. Andrew Weissman has said he thinks that might be another potential element of a crime, that Trump lied about it, that he said in his speech, you know, he tried to give himself the excuse that he did order the National Guard. That appears to be a lie. Do you think that that could factor into the DOJ's investigation in any way? I am not so sure that lying to the public can ever be a crime even though it should be, and even though it is an impeachable offense, it is one of the things that the Watergate prosecutors gave in the roadmap to impeachment to the House committee was lies by Richard Nixon. But the failure to act is a dereliction of duty. And I think that that is something that is worth looking at. I think, as you point out, he used the National Guard for his own benefit in a wrongful way and he did not use them to protect his vice president, to protect any member of Congress. The fact that members of Congress are forgiving him and forgetting what he did to them is shocking to me. And I think all of these things come together in a one massive conspiracy that includes yeah. many tentacles. I'll have to wear my octopus pin for you next uh, because it has so many tentacles. I need to know what pin you're wearing now, though, before we go, Jill. What's the pin? Oh, whoops, it's fallen, but it's it's Lady Justice. Let me get it back. Lady Justice. Yes. Lady and, Justice. And I can, we, I, Justice I, is now I love, acting, and I'm very happy. 
I adore both of you. And I'm gonna have to have you both come back because I want to talk about this question of could this man, Donald Trump, ever credibly take the oath of office? Because the words of that oath are antithetical to everything that he which did he the first time, We're, which and he violated. We're going to the crime that says if he's convicted of that, it's automatic. He cannot hold office. Of course, that, the Constitution that, says the same thing. So, yes, he should not yeah. be. He, and when The Wall Street Journal says that he's not capable of being in office again, that he cannot be yeah. trusted. Know that that's the Rupert Republicans Murdoch. are starting to move away. Yes. That's Rupert Murdoch. They're trying to run. Uh, Michael Beschloss, Jill Y. Makes. Cannot think of two better folks to open up the show tonight. Thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, breaking developments in the effort to bring Brittany Griner home as well as Paul Whelan. And it's going to mean the first high-level talks between the United States and Russia since the war in Ukraine began. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The Biden administration announced today that it has offered a substantial proposal to Russia to secure the release of WNBA star Brittany Griner and former Marine Paul Whelan, both being held by the Kremlin. In the coming days, I expect to speak with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov for the first time since the war began. I plan to raise an issue that's a top priority for us. The release of Americans Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, who've been wrongfully detained and must be allowed to come home. We put a substantial proposal on the table weeks ago to facilitate their release. Our governments have communicated repeatedly and directly on that proposal. And I'll use the conversation to follow up personally and, I hope, move us toward a resolution. The announcement marks the first time the administration has publicly revealed concrete steps that it has taken to secure the release of the two detained Americans. And while Secretary of State Tony Blinken did not provide any details on the proposed deal, two sources familiar with the talks tell NBC News that the substantial proposal involves trading Russian arms dealer Victor Bout who is serving a 25-year sentence in a U.S. prison. And in Russia today, Greiner was back in a Moscow court where she testified for the first time in her own defense. The Russians arrested her on drug charges, alleging that she was in possession of cannabis-derived vape cartridges at a Moscow airport in February. If convicted, which in Russian criminal cases happens 99% of the time, Greiner could face 10 years in prison. In the case of Paul Whelan, he's been detained in Russia since 2018, he was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment on charges of espionage, which he has denied. And joining me now is Julia Iaffi, Washington correspondent for Puck News, and Jonathan Franks, a crisis management consultant and spokesman for the family of Trevor Reed, who was recently released from Russia in a prisoner swap. And uh, Mr. Franks, I do want to start with you. This is Brittany Griner's legal team 
responding to discussions of this deal. Griner's Russian defense team learned about U.S.'s offer from the news. Defense team is not participating in the swap discussions. From the legal perspective, the swap is possible only after the court reaches a verdict. In any case, we would be really happy if Brittany will be able to come home and hope it will be soon. What do you read into that statement? And is that accurate, that essentially she has to be convicted and sentenced before anything could happen? I think it's theoretically right. I think it's the, you know, the proper way to do things. But, you know, th this is a country that's orchestrated and controlled by one man. So if he wants Ms. Griner to leave, she'll leave. And, you know, I hope that she does soon, along with Mr. Whelan and also Mark Fogel, who was sentenced to an absurd term earlier this week. And that is the other thing, is that we don't hear about Mr. Fogel, Mark Fogel. We've heard about, um, you know, some of the other folks, and obviously Mr. Whelan. Why do you suppose it's being done so piecemeal? Trevor Reed's release was individual for, and it was a swap for, a, it ended up being a prisoner swap. The Fogel isn't even being brought up. What do you make of sort of the piecemealing of this? I don't know. Um, I, I honestly, since last October, we, the Reeds and I have been trying to lobby, we're lobbying for a two for two deal. We were surprised when it was a one for one deal. And when it was a one for one, we hoped it would soon follow with Mr. Whelan and Ms. Griner. And 91 days later, it looks like we're kind of heading that direction. And to the president, to Secretary Blinken, I say bravo for that. Uh, Julia, let, let's talk about this Victor Bout. You know, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. This is in 2012. He was convicted of selling arms to Colombian rebels, which prosecutors said were intended to kill Americans. He has about five years left on his prison sentence. So it's not as if he's got 25 years to serve. He's a pretty bad guy. What do you make of the fact that this is the ask on Russia's side, potentially? Uh, we don't know that this is the ask on Russia's side. But they have been wanting Victor Boot back for a long time. He is a notorious arms dealer. And the reason that they were so incensed by Victor Boot's arrest is because he was taken not on U.S. soil, but in a third country. And Russia is very upset by that. They don't think that, um, you know, a, they're saying, you know, Russia's not running around taking American nationals in third countries, and neither should you be. And they've been wanting the DEA to kind of rein itself in, or the U.S. government to rein in the DEA and stop seizing Russian nationals in third countries. Uh, that is kind of the crux of the matter for them. But Victor Boot is kind of a nasty guy. It took a while to catch him. And I can see why the U.S. government held on to him as long as they did. I mean, they're 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 not having to run around because they're seizing Americans in their airport. Um, and, and Julia, so, in the case of Brittany Griner, she's somebody who was helping them. She's somebody who was help was there and dedicated to improving and enhancing Russian women's basketball. Here she is. She testified in court today. Let's want to play a little bit of. We haven't heard her for a while, so let's listen to what she had to say in court. We had to use my phone for and Google Translate for him to be able to tell me a little bit. There was a lady that was there that they said was an interpreter, but it was more just her telling me surname, sign, really short words. Uh, she didn't explain the content of the paper. Like I didn't know exactly what I was signing. No, uh, my rights were never read to me. Uh, no one explained any of it to me. 
And Julia, you know, I don't, I'm reluctant to take anything that she says at face value. Now she's a prisoner and she has to say whatever it takes to try to free herself. But what do you make of the fact that they did go for this very high profile detention of somebody like Brittany? So here's what I think happened. And this is what I'm gathering. My sources is that, um, she was, I think, this was a routine arrest. I think the, you know, customs, the, the border agents didn't know who she was. Um, like when you go, when you land at Shirimetsuba, this is what happens. You go, you have to put your luggage through the scanner. It's, it's kind of, it's a little scary and uncomfortable. It's very, you know, police statey. And, uh, they, they, they saw the vape cartridges, they arrested her. But when, uh, when a foreigner comes in contact with the police, they have to call the FSB. And I think at that point they realized that they had such a high value prisoner. And unfortunately, when we have these kinds of swaps, it creates few more and more incentive down the line for Russia to keep yeah. kidnapping yeah. people so that they can swap. Not, and not just for other prisoners that they want, but for example, there was the Israeli-American woman that they seized in the exact same way at Shinimitsuva Airport. Um, it was going through the transit zone, and they swapped her for property in Jerusalem that the Russian Orthodox Church wanted. You know, so it, it, it's the state basically kidnapping people because they know the U.S. wants its citizens back or Israel wants its citizens back, but Russia doesn't give a shit. And, and last question to you on this, Jonathan. Well, I, we're actually out of time. We're going to have to have, have you both back um, because this is obviously not going to be over anytime soon. Uh, Jonathan Yaffe, Jonathan Franks, thank you both very much. And still ahead, Gen Z abortion rights activist Olivia Juliana joins me to talk about how she has raised more than $300,000 thanks to Matt Gates's disgusting and juvenile trolling. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Kansas is an abortion island in the Midwestern Plains. That is because the Kansas Supreme Court back in 2019 ruled that the state's constitution protects the right to choose. Did you know that voters in Kansas, viewed as a reliably red state, have repeatedly expressed support for some reproductive rights? A poll last year found that 60 percent of Kansans opposed making abortion completely illegal. And slightly more than half believe that the Kansas government should not regulate abortion. So here's the rub. Kansas voters who have a primary election on Tuesday are being asked to support 
or reject an amendment that would explicitly strip the state constitution of that right, making it easier for the Republican-controlled legislature to further restrict or even outright ban abortion. And that legislature has been just licking its chops at the prospect. In the spring, a bill was introduced to ban abortion statewide with no exceptions for rape or incest. The timing of this referendum is no accident. Republicans placed it on the primary ballot because who is super engaged in the dog days of summer? Why, religious fanatic diehards, that's who. And they're being mobilized by churches across the state. Proponents and opponents of the amendment have been going door to door to get people to turn out, considering that early voting is already underway. After the overturning of Roe, many women and men across the country have been wondering how they can fight back. Well, Tuesday will be the first test. In the meantime, reproductive rights allies living in abortion deserts are working hard to help people find alternative routes. Among them, 19-year-old Olivia Juliana of Texas. Olivia called out none other than Matt Gates who's being investigated for alleged sex trafficking for making, and she accused him of making, or she noted that he made really gross comments about reproductive rights activists. Gates, who has accomplished literally nothing in Congress except becoming a well-known MAGA troll and being the best friend of a man indicted on multiple counts of sex trafficking, then targeted Olivia personally, because apparently he has not developed enough testosterone to become an actual adult man, which might explain his taste in paramours, allegedly. Now, in response, Olivia announced a fundraising campaign, which has so far raised $300,000 for abortion rights. She even wrote the rather undistinguished congressman a quite classy thank you note. Olivia Giuliana joins me now. And Olivia, thank you so much for being here. Saw the tweets and how viral they went and your responses. And I love my producers. I was like, can we get her on the show? And thank you for agreeing to come on. Um, I want to get it out of the way. You're, you, you've responded on social media to Matt Gates's disgusting, I won't even characterize them, but basically making fun of and putting down women who are abortion rights activists. And you're a 19 year old kid and he decided to target you. Your thoughts. I mean, I'm not necessarily surprised that this is a path that Matt Gates would take considering since he's been elected into Congress, his judgment has been questionable at best. Uh, I'm surprised that he thought that I would just allow him to publicly body shame me when I very clearly have a reputation and a past of letting Republican politicians know that that kind of behavior will not be tolerated. Amen. You will not beat Gen Z uh, at the trolling. <laughs> Don't even try. Leave the, leave, leave the, you, your whole generation alone on social. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, I do want to talk to you about that. I know you are from Texas, but you know, we're seeing in Kansas kind of the way that getting rid of Roe has given Republicans the opening to do what their most fanatical part of their base wants, which is ban abortion, potentially with no exceptions. This, in this case, it's being put to a vote publicly in the state of Kansas. You've raised a lot of money. Tell us what you plan to do with that money, because this is a time when people need organizing. They need door knockers. They need people to literally be in the faces of folks who might be infrequent voters. Is that what you intend to do with all this money you're raising? 
Absolutely. Uh, I want to make it noted that this money is being split amongst 50 abortion funds across the country, especially in states where those services will be needed the most because of restrictive abortion laws. So this money is going to the people who need it. It's going to the funds that are going to help people get the health care they need, despite these Republican attacks against reproductive rights. I'm extremely excited that I've been able to use my platform to do something that will genuinely make a tangible difference in people's lives. And, and how much have you raised so far? Uh, last I checked, it was $330,000 in the last 48 hours. That's, that's really, that's really dope. And I called you a kid. I will apologize for that, but you're a kid to me. Um, but I wonder for other young women your age, I mean, you're a kid to me, right? Um, it's, it, it's sad that somebody your age has to think about the state owning your body, but you're in a state, Texas, where that is what the Supreme Court has said is okay. What are women and young women, girls, teenagers, your age worried the most about? I think there, there's a lot of risks that come with reproductive health care access, whether it be the criminalization of miscarriages, whether it be people being stripped of their bodily autonomy, or even something as extreme as contraception being under attack. I think a lot of women across the country are afraid in general of not just their right to an abortion, but their right to simply exist and make decisions about their own body and their own identities. Um, I will say that I've seen my generation mobilized like no other before, whether it be on social media or marching in the streets or even marching to the ballot box. We saw record vote. We saw record voter turnout in 2020, especially amongst Gen Z. And with these kinds of attacks coming from Republican politicians, I am more than certain we will see it again come this November. It's like that because that's been the thing is that people are I see pundits saying, oh, well, the Democrats are going to get wiped out. And that's just the way it is, because there's this history and that history. And I feel like they're not noticing how angry women of all ages are about the loss of our right to exist as full citizens. Do you see the kind of anger that you think could sustain all the way through November? Absolutely, I do. I see it every day on social media. I have platforms on every platform and I see tens of thousands of women on a daily basis talking about how they are making plans to vote. They are making plans to fight back against these abortion bans and against these oppressive laws that are being put forward. And I have no doubt whatsoever that they are going to make their voices heard, whether it be in the streets or whether it be in November. And I think that we're starting to see more and more Republicans like Matt Gates make these childish attacks because they know that these women are mobilizing across the country, whether it be women who marched back when Roe was first decided upon, or whether it be young women like me who have been fighting this fight for the last few years as teenagers. So I think that we're going to see a lot more people fighting for this than the Republicans are expecting. And I'm quite excited to see that myself. Amen. I mean, Alito may want us to all live in the uh, 19th or 18th century, but Women ain't going back to the 19th, 18th century. And by the way, Matt Gates wouldn't have been effective in those centuries either, because he's really not good at this whole being a congressman thing. Olivia Giuliana, that's me, not you. I'm putting that on myself. Olivia Giuliana, thank you very much. And coming up next, what do you get when you take a three-legged stool and chop off two of the legs? The modern Republican Party. I'll explain next. The composition of the Republican Party is often described as a three-legged stool, 
One leg represents the social conservatives, the Christian far right who are obsessed with seizing women's bodies. The second leg is made up of hawks thirsty for unnecessary wars. And the third would be the fiscal conservatives. This framing was popularized by the rise of the new right and the election of Ronald Reagan. Things have changed, though, quite a bit since the Reagan era, meaning this stool is still a stool, just rearranged a bit. Yes, one leg still represents the white evangelical Christian fanatics, and another leg still represents the Warhawks. But that third leg is now made up of neo-fascists and their grievance politics, the people who want hierarchical Christian man rule. But here's another thing about that stool. No one ever talks about the seat, right? It is an important component. The seat holds it all together. Otherwise, there is no stool. And that seat at the top is the Republican obsession with tax cuts, the single most important thing for the Republican Party. It's why Republicans vote Republican, why they consistently show up to vote. It is how they win and why they win. It's how they elected a reality TV star riddled with controversy. Because as anti-tax activist Grover Norquist said in 2012, the only thing the Republican Party needed in its next president was enough working digits to handle a pen, to sign the precious, the massive tax cuts for the rich. It's why you hear all those Republicans saying that while they didn't like Trump's personality, they, they liked the policies, even though the only policy things that he accomplished in four years were packing the Supreme Court with anti-Roe, but also very corporate and rich people-friendly judges, a stimulus package that literally handed billion-dollar bags to the airline industry and other corporate welfare recipients, and signing a massive tax cut so sweet it made Paul Ryan retire from politics like the fullest guy at Thanksgiving dinner. The phenomenon was crystallized even further yesterday in Washington, D.C., when Donald Trump and Mike Pence gave dueling speeches on America's future. Now, at one Marriott, Trump painted a grim fascism-friendly picture of the nation, a similar sort of speech to his American carnage speech in 2017. Our country is now a cesspool of crime. Our streets are riddled with needles and soaked with the blood of innocent victims. They want to damage you in any form, but they really want to damage me so I can no longer go back to work for you. Mm, how not to hide under your bed? Well, at that other Marriott, you had Pence praising Trump. Well, I will tell you that uh, I couldn't be uh, more proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration. So I don't know that our movement is that divided. I don't know that the president and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. Okay, what? Proud of the Trump-Pence administration? Even after the Trump part of the Trump-Pence administration literally sent armed thugs to hang you? There's video. We know you saw it, Mike. It just shows how Pence and his fellow Republicans are willing to overlook anything, even attempts to publicly lynch you, so long as they get the precious. And no, not a wall. Y'all, you know they never intended to do that, right? It's the tax cuts for the uber-rich. And up next, how Reaganomics stuck it to millennials, set the stage for Trumpism, and why radio host Tom Hartman wrote an apology to young Americans mired in debt. He joins me next. 
Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson may be cooperating with the DOJ's January 6th probe and did offer damning testimony against Donald Trump. But let's not forget the praise she also shared about her former boss. As a staffer that works to always represent the administration to the best of my ability and to showcase the good things that he had done for the country, I remember feeling frustrated. Now you heard that, right? The good things Trump did for this country, those good things being what exactly? David Hoppe, former chief of staff to tax-cut-obsessed one-time House Speaker Paul Ryan, shared his answer on our show. List them. List, the, list these policies. Because I hear people say this a lot. What policies, specifically? Well, the tax cuts. There you go. Joining me now, Tom Hartman, host of the Tom Hartman program. Tom, I'm a big fan, so I am excited to finally get you onto the show. And I'm such a big fan that I'm going to forgive you for ignoring Generation X in your ex otherwise excellent op-ed. Um, but I want to read a little bit of this op-ed. You. <laughs> you skipped us. We always get skipped, though. We're used to it. We're used to it. Um, this is your apology to young Americans. And you wrote this on the Hartman Report. Dear millennials, I'm sorry we didn't stop them. Your generation today holds only 4.6% of the nation's wealth, and you're most likely struggling to own a home and are deeply in debt. What happened in a word? Republicans. The most important reason millennials are so badly screwed these days is the various changes in our tax code that began in the 1980s. Reagan dropped the top tax rate on the morbidly rich from 74% down to 27% and cut corporate tax cut rates from 50% to functionally nothing. I'm just going to let you talk because every time I hear Republicans say, I didn't like Trump's personality, but I like the policies. All I hear is, I love those tax cuts for the rich. They love tax cuts. And they will they will literally let the devil become president if they can get tax cuts. But I'm going to let you talk. Well, thank you, Joy. And thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. It's great to see you. Uh, yeah, we have we are on the tail end of a 42 year experiment in neoliberalism that Ronald Reagan rolled out. The Republican Party embraced, you know, some Democrats embraced as well, although I think there's a consensus across the Democratic Party now that it's a failed experiment. Um, that huge tax cut that Reagan did and then George W. Bush mm -hmm. doubled down on it and then Donald Trump tripled down on it has transferred literally 50 trillion dollars over a 42 year period out of the pockets of the of working class people and into the pockets of the top one tenth of one percent, 50 trillion dollars. Um, NPR reported back about six years ago that the middle class used to be like half of us. Right. I mean, that's why it was called the middle class. Actually, in 1980, yeah. when Reagan came to office, it was about 60 percent of it of us. Now it's like in the neighborhood of 45, 46 percent of us. The middle class has been wiped out. Our wages were wiped out by this by Reagan's neoliberalism, by by these uh, Republican policies that they're still embracing, hating on unions, um, the so-called right to work for less laws and things like that. They went after our ability to get an education and yours and our and, and my kids, you know, and, and the Zoomers and everybody. Um, you know, I went to college back in the 60s. I didn't graduate, but the brief time yeah. that I was there, um, I was able to pay tuition by working you know, part time as a as a dishwasher at Bob's Big Boy and pumping gas at an Esso station. You could do that in the 60s. That was 68, 69. Um, they came after. And, and now you've got, you know, two trillion dollars in student debt. We're literally the only developed country in the world that has a widespread problem of student debt. We they can, went can after I just our stop health. Stop you there. 
Can, sure, can I just stop you right here on the student debt thing? Because whenever Republicans, when you bring up the idea, because there is this sort of who benefits, right? The, um, the qui bono question in politics. If you say we're going to cut taxes on the rich, Republicans run and do it. If you say we're going to, you know, transfer some, a little bit of tax money to sort of pay off student debt. They say moral hazard, right? It's always moral hazard if you want to provide health care to people who need it. It's moral hazard when you want to provide uh, relief to student debt. But it's never moral hazard to balloon the deficit for more tax cuts. And they're, they're willing to be more and more extreme to appease the base with, you know, bananas like social stuff to get it. it. Do you think my theory is correct that they, they're getting more and more extreme because they have to do more to entertain their base to sell the idea of stealing essentially from their base to give to the rich? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and it's starting to wear thin. I mean, you know, the, these folks will say, oh, well, we can't uh, give people free education or free health care because right. when people get things that are free, they don't value them. And you can't just give people money. And then they go out and they say, but you should not tax our wealth for our inheritance because we want to make sure that our kids get all our money. Right. And and it's at some point people are going, huh, <laughs> this doesn't make any friggin sense. So, you know, they so, yeah, they they went after education. Then they went after our small businesses. I, I my whole life, uh, you know, Louise and I have run seven small have started and run seven small businesses. Four of them were pretty successful. One failed terribly. That's how you learn. Um, but you just can't do that. anymore. It's, you know, it's everything has gotten monopolized. These giant corporations. Uh, now they're coming after our rent. They're, you know, you've got Wall Street buying up houses all across the United States just so they can rent them out. And then what we find and the Wall Street Journal actually did some pretty good journalism on this about four months ago. What they found was that, you know, when they hit this critical threshold of I think it was four or five percent of all the homes in a community owned by Wall Street, they started jacking up the rents. Just boom. I mean, you know, like 10, 15, 20 percent rent increases yeah. every single year. So, you know, the, the Zoomers and well, really everybody, you know, I, I, yeah. I said, you know, dear millennials, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, my kids are millennials. So I was speaking to them, I suppose. But, my um, you know, they yeah. And they and they just, you know, they they have been relentless. It's all about transferring wealth and power. That's correct. Uh, transferring wealth top. and power Ooh. up. Up, up, up. And, and Tom Harmon, I have to have you back because we need to talk more about this because it underlines a lot of the extremism in our politics, too, because they got to do more crazy in order to sell that to their base. Uh, Tom Hartman, you're brilliant. Thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.